1: And we are bringing you into the discussion that ACC Action, along with New Hampshire Young Republicans and College Republicans, had with Vivek Ramaswamy.
0: Welcome to Coming Clean, the podcast dedicated to common sense environmental dialogue, environmental optimism, and real environmental solutions. This show is proudly powered by Orsted. Thank you. I think Virginia wasn't lying when she said that all three of those issues intersect, because yes, you managed I to agree. already talk about all three um, in the first section. But when we talk about the environment, I think there's there's two aspects of the conversation, right? There's conservation, but yes. then there's also climate change. And I'd love to talk a little bit about both tonight, if that's all right. Uh, I wanted to say off the bat, thank you for recognizing that
1: there's a difference between those two things.
0: Yeah, of course. I mean, we're called the American Conservation yes. Coalition Action. You need to have both. Um, but I'd love to start with what might be called The elephant in the room. Um, Obviously, at the first debate, we had climate change come up as a topic actually from one of our members. Um, And then at the fourth debate, most recently, you brought it up yourself in your closing statement. And what I found really interesting was that you seem quite careful about distinguishing between what you call the climate change agenda and climate change itself. I'd love to get your kind of uh, thoughts on why you make that distinction and your views on climate change itself, not just the agenda. Sure. So I appreciate this because this is
1: a discussion we need to be having. 30 seconds on a debate stage. I'm still very precise every time I said the climate change agenda is a hoax, but I don't have time to explain the distinction of what that means. So first of all, climate change has existed as long as the earth has existed. Let's acknowledge that. Now, let's talk about what's happening today. Are global surface temperatures going up by a little bit? It appears they are. Are there man-made causes associated with that? It appears there is but is that anything approaching an existential risk for humanity? It is not. And I think it is a fact that more people are dying of bad climate change policies than are dying of actual climate change itself. So I'm just going to state some things that are facts first, and then we can get into the debate on policy. Facts are, in the 1970s, remember, the concern about climate change was that we were about to enter a global ice age, not that it was going to be global warming. Now, today, this year, in 2023, eight times as many people will have died of cold temperatures rather than warm ones. That's a fact. It is also a fact that there has been a 98% reduction in the climate disaster-related death rate over the last century. Does that mean the number of climate-related disasters are lower? No. But the death rate is 98% lower than it was a century ago. Why? Because of advances in technology, building conditions, and otherwise temperature regulation, much of which was driven by advances in the use of fossil fuels. So, against that backdrop, you get to take a few more facts. Because this is where conservation and climate policy comes somewhere into the conflict. The Earth is more covered by green surface area coverage today than it was half a century or a century ago, partly because carbon dioxide is required for plant growth in this country, in this country, and around the world. And, and I said I want you to mention this, so I'll take an opportunity to do this now and then we can dive into it is, I'll tell you about something that's actually come up on the campaign trail in Iowa that's a really big issue right now, which is in the name of fighting climate, because this is where I think that these things can come into conflict with one another. You have a carbon dioxide capture pipeline. So removing carbon dioxide from the atmosphere, from ethanol plants. They're building, using federal subsidies, a pipeline to bury it all the way from Iowa across multiple states into the ground in North Dakota. Many farmers don't want that pipeline built across their land. Why? Because there has been often leakage in those pipelines. Sometimes that's resulted in Mississippi and multiple people, many people in a single town where there was a leak ending up in the hospital, a significant plurality of that town. Yields, it affects farmers' yields for their crops and yet they're using eminent domain. So even if the person doesn't want that built across their land, the government is saying they have no right but to have it built across their property. And this is because California does not allow you to sell ethanol or corn or whatever into their market unless you have actually minimized your carbon emissions. Yet California is a state that I think for good reason has banned these carbon capture pipelines. And so I think that there's a lot of innate hypocrisy, although I love this one because the Sierra Club and actually a lot of grassroots conservatives in Iowa are on the same side of this issue. So a lot of this defies partisan boundaries. It goes back to special interests, the electric vehicle subsidies or otherwise. It comes back to crony capitalism, which has nothing to do with the climate and everything to do with China advancing the gap on the United States and a bunch of people making money in the process of pushing that agenda. And that is what I'm most strongly against and i think i'm the only person in this party who's actually able to speak to that degree of crony capitalism
0: i'd love to pick up on the pipeline discussion a little later uh first to talk about the the two first statistics you mentioned first about climate related deaths but then also um the one what was the second one um
1: so we're talking about green surface area
0: coverage climate disaster
1: related deaths and then and then more people dying of cold temperatures rather than warm ones
0: so on the first one I, I think that the evidence is obviously uh, there that climate-related deaths are going down. I think the one thing that the 98% figure overstates is that if you were to choose the 1910s rather than the 1920s as your baseline, the number is actually 30%, not 98, which is still good. still that a reduction. still a reduction, uh, but I think that we need to be careful in showing that actually like, there have been a five-fold increase in climate-related disasters. We're spending a lot of money on disaster relief, $310 billion between 2015 and 2021. So clearly, climate change is still having an impact. Now, the infrastructure that we have driven by innovation and technology has helped with that. Um, and so I, I agree that that's something that we should be championing and, and saying that that's a good thing. Um, but I think it's still important to point out that climate Fair change enough. is can, having can an Can I call out one point, though, because I
1: think that this is... This is a thoughtful discussion. and It is an opportunity to do something I don't, we don't usually get to do in this discussion is I think we should call out what's really lurking beneath the surface here is what's the right framework for having this debate? I think on one hand, you have a group of people who embrace what we think of as the anti-impact framework. How do we minimize human impact on the climate? And that framework would teach you to measure things that human beings do that have an impact on the climate, such as how much carbon dioxide or methane or whatever else you're releasing into the atmosphere. If that's the question you want to answer, that's what you should measure. I think our goal is a different one. Our goal, I believe, should be what advances human prosperity, what Alex Epstein has called human flourishing. That's a different view. It's a values question. If your values question is, how do we minimize the impact on Earth or on the climate, then you should absolutely be measuring the things we're measuring today. But if, you're, if you care about measuring human flourishing, then you should be looking at things like death rates. That's the fundamental divide. And I'm not passing a value judgment on which one is right. I fall on the side of believing that we should be solving for what maximizes human prosperity. It's a pro-human framework. But most people, I think, would tell you they agree with me on the pro-human framework. And yet we live in a world where every measurement we're solving for pretends as though it's actually the anti-impact framework. Just by way of nods, like, I know that was a little bit abstract, perhaps, but do you, do you track what I'm saying there broadly? Because I think that's what's really lurking beneath the surface of this debate, is let's decide what we're even solving for. I think we're solving for what maximizes human prosperity and human flourishing. If so, let's talk about the climate can be one of a hundred factors that affect or thousand factors that affect human flourishing. And I'm not saying that we should negate it, but that's what we should be solving for, in my opinion, not the anti-impact framework as an end in itself. Tell me if that makes sense to you.
0: Yeah, of course, I don't, I don't disagree. And I think one of the problems we've seen with kind of the, the alarmist climate approach is that it puts abstract numbers like parts per million over kind of human lives. But I, I will say that when we look at kind of the, the, the science around climate change, Obviously, the, the more extreme scenarios should be rejected because they're not scientific, but there is still solid evidence that it will impact whether it's sea level rise or um, extreme weather or the impact on farming and food availability and droughts in, in places like India and across the world. Uh, the other thing is that isn't talked enough about is the fact that uh, fossil fuels every year cause particulate matter that leads to 5 to 8 million people dying prematurely. So surely we should be thinking about sources of energy that are good for prosperity. That's a different debate about, about clean air and clean water. But if we're talking about particulates
1: in the air, we should also talk about the fact that electric vehicles, because of the weight of batteries, cause actually more of rubber tires to turn into particulate matter in the air that also causes actually many more deaths. There's good studies on this. But all I would say is let's keep our discussion clean about if we're solving for the climate, let's debate the climate. If we're talking about clean air and clean water, let's talk about clean air and clean water. You get to that example of that carbon capture pipeline in a place like Iowa, the climate policies are actually contributing, or the electric vehicle, weight of cars increasing that put rubber particulate matter into the air. There's actually intention between what the supposed climate policy is and what the supposed clean air or clean water policy is. And the other thing I'll say about climate change before we leave that topic, or, you know, sort of before we leave this strand of it, is we have to admit there are some net positive impacts for humanity from climate change too, right? How could it be that the climate was changing, but it was only in every way that could be negative, right? There are are some negatives and there are some positives. And so I think we need to start discussing this issue and at least what the net effect is. And so the idea that the climate is changing is automatically presumed to be a net negative. As I said, more people are literally dying of cold temperatures than warm ones. So a slight increase in global surface temperatures for the foreseeable future will result in fewer deaths as a result of temperature-related causes. That has to be at least something that's part of the conversation about climate change that I think isn't today. And if we're having an honest reckoning about it, that at least belongs in part of the conversation. Is it? I don't want to say positive or negative, I want to say net positive or net negative, I think should be the way that we're also discussing this issue.
0: I think that makes sense. Can I just quickly pick up on your statistic about Deaths from heat versus cold. Um, From my research that I've seen, the the National Weather Service um, released data that over the last thirty years, actually the number one leading cause of death for weather related events is extreme heat. Um, Actually, almost four times as many as globally cold in the United States. My figures are global. My figures are global. Right? Is well, and there's a difference in infrastructure. Of course, there's a difference in infrastructure across the world, but we are seeing extreme heat causing more deaths in America. And we're, we're, it's, it's but entirely we're realistic that we're going globally, up. But change globally,
1: though, just to be Bjorn Lomberg and the Copenhagen Institute's written about this, is eight times as many people on planet Earth are going to die of cold temperatures rather than warm ones. And it is a global effort on climate change that we're talking about here.
0: So I think, right, in, of, of in course, but for the most part, the world is industrialising and getting richer. And we've seen in America that cold deaths have gone down as a result of us industrialising and getting richer because we can overcome those problems. Because of technology. Right. Yeah. My point is that as the rest of the world overcomes those problems and helps people not die from cold temperatures because we're doing those, those technological advances, with climate change, we'll still see an increase in extreme temperatures, extreme heat that will have an impact in these other countries as they're industrializing as well. So it's a I think it's a, that's a nice. claim. I think that's a, that's, a, that's a claim that I think goes beyond what our certainty is on the
1: models that we're using. And I do think that there is a disconnect here between and you, know, I don't know how much you all know about my background. I started a biotech company before that. I was a molecular biology undergrad. I was kind of one of the academic guys that, uh, for better or worse, was, you know, steeped in the lab and otherwise, and, you know call me an academic person in, in the sciences, and certainly in my education. OK. I'm tied to the hard facts on this, and I see a major disconnect. Between what the underlying actual primary publications, for those who study this area of science, have to say, versus the media synthesis, the knowledge synthesis ecosystem. And I think that's one of the most dangerous gaps right now in the debate about climate policy. Isn't even really the policymakers, right? I mean, they're just listless vessels at the end of the day who, who do what they're paid to do by lobbyists and super PAC donors. I mean, that's put them to one side. That's, we know how, that's, how that works. But it's the gap between what the public understands the underlying scientific claim to be versus the knowledge synthesis ecosystem, call it the media, or second-order scientific media, versus what the underlying underlying research actually says. And I don't have a great answer for you on how we're going to close that gap, other than it's part of what's given me my special sense of duty to expose what a lot of those underlying facts are so that we're able to have a legitimate debate about what advances human prosperity rather than bending the knee to one set of dicta that commingle policy with actual underlying science.
0: Yeah, you, you talked about how we can close that gap. And a lot of that is a knowledge gap and an education gap. And that's part of the reason why my organization, the American Conservation Coalition Action exists, is to help educate people. Um, and, and I think really when we look at the science, for example, put forth by the IPCC and how that's portrayed in the media or by uh, kind of mainstream climate organizations, I agree with you that there is uh, hysteria around that. But the IPCC itself says that the most extreme climate scenarios are the least realistic. They also say that the climate scenarios where nothing is going to happen are also the least realistic. That there, It says somewhere in between, right? It will. Let me finish the point. It will have a real impact on the world. It will lead to increased... Um, increased temperatures, obviously, rising sea levels, impact on agriculture and things like that. But I think that just because we disagree with the less framing of it, or just because we disagree with their solutions to it, doesn't mean that we should be rejecting the fact that there is a problem altogether. And what I want to pivot to here with you right now is, isn't that an opportunity for conservatives to come up with our own policy agenda that will actually protect the environment, that will reduce emissions while growing the economy, while giving other countries around the world an opportunity to develop while not relying on the CCP to reduce their emissions out of the goodness of their hearts? Why don't we unleash nuclear energy? Why don't we cut red tape in the United States as holding back disproportionately clean energy? Why don't we introduce competition and choice into this conversation so that innovation rather than regulation drives it? I think that's a message that young conservatives across the country want to hear. I'd love to get your thoughts on that.
1: Yeah. So I think we're Aligned on where we end up, I just want it to be make sure it's grounded on truthful premises, and then and then we'll go to with the policy because I think we're going to land in the same place. But I think sometimes, even if you're one degree off, over the course of time, that results in a daylight that you otherwise need to be careful about between our views. So that's why I think the premises are important. Just because temperatures are changing does not mean I would say two things about that: that it's net bad. So, is there's a difference between a phenomenon versus that phenomenon being a problem? There's a difference between a problem and an existential problem, and I think that the right answer here, if we were to get to a punchline here, of one framework that I like to think about is adaptation. That's what human beings have always done. We have always adapted to changing circumstance, and I think that it is far more practical. Again, back to that human flourishing, human prosperity framework, we're more likely to be able to adapt, as we always have through the improvement in quality of our buildings or our vehicles or temperature regulation or otherwise, sooner than we're somehow going to try to play God, I believe, and try to, with precision, change the climate. I mean, if this kind of human behavior has already changed the climate by a little bit, and that was unintentional, who are we to think that an intentional change of human intervention in the climate is going to produce something more desirable? than what we already have today, right? So I think that we, adaptation, I think, is, an, is not enough part of the conversation. And then there's the conversation of where we really align, which is clean air and clean water. I think conservatives need to own the clean air and clean water agenda. Okay, the left has lost its mind with this climate cult. Let's bring it back to, I mean, take that carbon dioxide capture pipeline in Iowa that I brought up. One of the proprietors of that is actually one of the people responsible for deforestation in the Amazon or whatever to actually bring corn that they import back into the U.S. to produce ethanol. So the self-interest here creates a real double standard. What we actually need in the United States is policies that say Americans deserve clean air to breathe and clean water to drink, a Teddy Roosevelt vision of conservatism. I love conserving our national parks, the beauty of this country for human usage i mean it's a selfishly human perspective not some earth oriented perspective it's a human perspective these are things that we can stand for as conservatives i think we should be embracing more nuclear energy not because it's carbon free energy production but because it is a large-scale abundant form of energy production and lifts us up out of poverty if we're able to harness it and the irony is many of the same opponents to the climate to carbon emissions are also opponents to nuclear energy. So probably of all the things you said, the only area that I slightly disagree with is I don't think that we should be focused on reducing emissions as a goal. I think we should be focused on what advances American economic welfare, American overall welfare as a goal, American well-being. And so we shouldn't be measuring carbon emissions. To the contrary, I would actually rescind any regulation requiring the measurement of carbon emissions, because I think we're measuring the wrong thing. Let's start measuring health. American health. How many people are dying of diseases every year that could be preventable or otherwise? And then measure our economic growth and nuclear energy will absolutely be a part of that solution. And solar or other forms of energy, I'm fine with too, but I don't think the government should be artificially subsidizing those industries. And we end up creating many more hypocrisies with an electric vehicle cult that depends on baseload power generation that comes from natural gas and coal. And yet the same agenda that is, in favor of subsidizing electric vehicles, is doing nothing to improve baseload power generation from what's going to be required to power those electric vehicles, all the, while, all the while emitting more particulate matter into the air that contributes to a clean air crisis in this country, and worst of all, has no plan to dispose of those batteries, powered lithium batteries and otherwise, that were dependent on China for. So human prosperity, American prosperity, measure that, nail it, from health and economic well-being. Reject the carbon cult, anti-carbon cult, measurement characteristics that have shackled this economy, focus on clean air, clean water, and conserving the beauty of our United States of America, that is, I think, an affirmative conservative vision that we can all embrace going forward as conservatives in this country.
0: Just a final point and question for me before we go to the Q&A. I know you have a busy schedule, so you have to leave pretty soon. Um, I think that obviously where we probably disagree most is, is on the actual science of it and, and the, uh, the idea that climate change will have an impact and that we need to do something about it. But I think we do agree on the fact that competition, innovation, American leadership, ingenuity, entrepreneurship, those are conservative principles that also will solve this problem. We look at, for example, California versus Texas, California, highest electricity prices in the country, and they're not meeting their climate goals. Texas is the largest producer of clean energy in the country, has the lowest prices in the country, is actually decarbonizing on a per capita basis faster than California. Why? Because they have electricity choice and competition, which drives innovation. And obviously, I think we'll disagree on the fact of whether we should be measuring carbon emissions or not. I believe that, that we should be. But the solutions are, or should be conservative solutions, um, not top-down government-led ones. The final, the final question, just to ask you quickly you've presented yourself as kind of the youth candidate. You've done a lot to engage young people. We're we're grateful that you're here to talk to us about this. Um, Just from a kind of political economy perspective, we know that this is a top three issue for young people. We also know that a recent poll shows that 81% of young conservatives believe climate change is real. We need to do something to reduce emissions. How do you feel like in a general election, you could win when this is an issue that has swung independent and young voters for Democrats, because Republicans have had a lack of an of a ambitious and um, enticing agenda for the next generation. So I don't think that that has to stay static
1: where it is. I believe in something we call persuasion. There's an old saying, he goes, if you care about somebody, you tell them the truth or at least what you believe. If you care about yourself, you tell them what they want to hear. So I know the polling data you're talking about. And I, I believe me, we want young people to come out and support us. Because I think we need generational change in this country, somebody who isn't going to send young people to go die in somebody else's war, somebody who removes the $200,000 per death per person that's on every young person's shoulder right now and somebody who's going to do that. So I I think I'm there. But I think one of the things that's going to worsen the plight of young people is if the United States of America ultimately adopts the wrong policies that the American dream is already out of reach for many young Americans. It's hanging on for life support. It's not alive and well. It's hanging on for life support. I worry we're going to cut that final cord if the United States moves towards forced decarbonization, government top-down version of that as a goal. I don't even think we disagree on the premise that you thought we disagree on. We said the underlying science. I don't think we disagree on the fact that global surface temperatures are going up. I think we need to focus on adaptation rather than playing God over the climate. And I think that that's something that young or old, but especially young people, should actually be behind in recognizing that we as Americans in particular, we're the pioneers. We're the explorers, the unafraid. The guy that we mentioned earlier, Thomas Jefferson, who invented the swivel chair while he was writing the Declaration of Independence at the age of 33. Benjamin Franklin, who invented the Franklin stove. And yes, it was a gas stove, and he's not a bad man for that. You know. And, and in the bifocal spectacle and a remedy to a common cold that we are those pioneers and explorers and that we shouldn't apologize for that. So we'll always face changing circumstances. But what we do as human beings is we innovate, we adapt, we master. That's what we do. And I think that's a far more promising path than to adopt what I believe has adopted a somewhat religious quality to it in a conviction that it is man's obligation to intentionally change the climate because man somehow unintentionally changed the climate. And I think that that, I think, is a far more unifying approach here because it is grounded in the truth. And I am hopeful that even though, here's one way you know that I'm telling you what I mean, is I'm aware of the polling data you're citing. And so if it was a guy who just wanted to collect short-term votes, I'd just spit that right back to you. I'm not doing that for a reason. And I think that, as I said, maybe next time you have somebody who's just telling you what you want to hear, remember what I told you is somebody who cares about you tells you what they believe. Somebody who cares about themselves is telling you what you want to hear. And so, with that said, I think this is a great discussion. And I think there's a discussion that's going to be important to the future of our movement.
0: Quick 10 second comment, then we'll have one question quickly before we go to the last section. I think it's interesting, like talking about adaptation, I agree it's underrepresented in the conversation. Still, the premise of adaptation is that there's a problem to adapt to. And it depends on the, the level of the problem. We're not going to go back into that, but we're going to ask adapt for, if for there's one a problem. And if there's not, no need to adapt.
1: But that's the way human beings need, need to move, is what I would say. Once again, to stay up to date with future episodes that we release, make sure that you are subscribed to the Coming Clean podcast on Apple, Spotify, wherever you get your podcast, and leave a review if you enjoyed what you've heard. Our next episode, releasing tomorrow. We'll be with North Dakota Governor Doug Burgum. Take care until then.
0: And before we jump, the Coming Clean podcast is grateful to be powered by Orsted, a wonderful company strengthening America's energy security with reliable and domestic clean energy. Through its integrated renewable energy solutions, Orsted is creating American jobs, investing in American communities, and driving American innovation, all while preserving our country's natural habitats. A clean energy future truly connects us all, and Orsted is helping lead the charge. To learn more, visit us.orsted.com.